This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Biancooley. That's the Detroit-based band The MC5, one of the most radical of all the rock bands from the late 60s. The band's founder, singer, and one of its guitarists, Wayne Kramer, died last week at the age of 75. The group MC5, which stood for Motor City 5, was loud and often dissonant. Some lyrics had expletives you couldn't play on the radio, and the band's politics were far to the left. In their early days, they were managed by John Sinclair, head of the White Panther Party, who used to preach revolution at the MC5 concerts. They played at many demonstrations and were the only band to play at the protest outside the infamous Chicago Democratic Convention in 1968. The MC5 broke up in 1972 and now is considered a forerunner of punk rock. Wayne Kramer struggled with drinking and drugs and was arrested on drug charges and sent to prison for two years. We're going to listen to Terry's 2002 interview with Wayne Kramer at the time he had released a solo album called Adult World. Let's go back to the beginning, more or less, of your story. You grew up in Detroit. Did your father work in the audio industry? Yeah, well, in a satellite sense. You know, he was uh, an electrician and uh, uh, later was in the building trades. Did you and, and then I had a I had a stepfather later on who also worked in the uh, he actually worked in an oil refinery there in in Detroit. Did Did you figure that when you grew up, your job would somehow be connected to the auto industry? Well, that was my fear. <laughs> you know, that's that's the birthright if you're born in the industrial Midwest. You know that you're gonna you're gonna end up a shop rat. How was the MC Five first created? And let's let's place it. It was what 1968, 67. Well, that's when we kind of broke out of a, a, a regional um, popularity into onto the national consciousness. But we really started about 64, 65 in a neighborhood kind of way. You know, I, I uh, looked around for guys in the neighborhood that wanted to be in a band and uh, collected a bunch of uh, ne'er-do-wells uh, just like me. I mean, this is... You know, the, the boom time after World War II, everybody has good jobs, and you can buy an electric guitar uh, on credit from Sears, uh, and they were everywhere. I mean, everybody, you know, somebody ha- everybody had an electric guitar. Everybody was in a band. I mean, it was really uh, a popular activity. But, you know, we, we kind of coagulated as the MC5 at a point, me, uh, Rob Tyner, Fred Smith, uh, Michael Davis and Dennis Thompson, and uh, really, you know, we really worked hard on what we were trying to do. We really worked hard on trying to be the best band we could possibly be. You know, be be better than everybody else. Because for us, it was we looked at it as a way out of the factory, as a way as an alternative to the lifestyle that we were guaranteed to have to fulfill. Uh, it just didn't. It just wasn't all that appealing. You know. Well, the MC5 became, you know, a, a self-styled revolutionary group. What politicized you? What, what got you thinking more about revolution than Chuck Berry? 
Well, Chuck Berry was revolutionary. Um, but, you know, it was the day we were very much a part of the time we lived in. And this was a time in the 60s. And I know it's hard for people to, to have a feel for it today. Um, but the, the country was fractured down the middle. And um, this, the war in Vietnam had created such a division uh, in the generations between the older World War II generation and our generation um, that we really thought the whole thing could just blow up at any time. Um, and uh, we just were frustrated with the slow pace of change. We were, we were anxious about the future, and we felt like we had to take action. And the action we took was in endorsing um, our idols, which were the Black Panther Party and Malcolm X and, um, and our, you know, our spiritual leaders, which we viewed as John Coltrane and, you know, and Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Archie Shepp. And, and we tried to, to bring all these ideas together in a message that our band could represent um, the idea that, you know, you didn't have to go along with the program, that there was a better way that we could do things. The band hooked up with John Sinclair, who was the head of the White Panther Party. What was the philosophy of the party? Well, Bobby Seale and, and Huey Newton put out the call for there to be a, a group in the, in the white community, in the hippie community, to take up parallel work with the Black Panther Party. And we were ready. I mean, we just said, yeah, that's us, you know, and and it was romantic and it was dangerous. And uh, but I don't want it to I don't want you to think that, uh, you know, that we were we were sitting in a warehouse on the west side of Detroit, desperately cleaning our shotguns, waiting for the revolution. I mean, we sat around a table and smoked tons of marijuana and laughed our asses off at what was going on. And this all just seemed to make perfect sense to us, you know. Let me read part of the 10-point program of the White Panther Party. Mm -hmm. We want justice. We want a free world economy. We want a clean planet. We want a free educational system. We want to free all structures from corporate rule. We want free access to all information, media, and technology. We want the freedom of all people who are being held against their will in the conscripted armies of the oppressor throughout the world. We want the freedom of all political prisoners of war. We want a free planet. We want free land, free food, free shelter, free clothing, free music, free culture, free media, free technology, free education, free health care, free bodies, free people, free time and space, everything free. <laughs> <laughs> Bring back memories. Love it. <laughs> uh, boy, that's, that sounds great. <laughs> did, did, did you charge for concerts or were they always free? <laughs> Oh, we charged as much as we could. Unfortunately, many times they were free. So you got a record company contract. We did indeed. And then you went around recording things like Kick Out the Jams, Mother Expletive Deleted, mm -hmm. um, which couldn't very well be played on the radio. And I'm sure the record company wasn't really thrilled that the lyrics to your song had an expletive, like like the king of expletives on it. <laughs> <laughs> So what were you or thinking? Or the queen of expletives. What were you thinking when you got this good album contract, this good record deal, and then, you know, recorded a song on it that couldn't possibly play it and that you had to know would be um, considered a real liability to the record company? Well, <clears throat> um, you know, the song the song had this introduction, you know, where uh, we came out and, and we 
screamed at the top of our lungs, kick out the jams, MF. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we weren't complete idiots about it. You know, we knew that that would never be played on the radio. So we, re we recorded an alternative intro, which was kick out the jams, brothers and sisters. And, uh, you know, it might be an interesting footnote to, to look at it because what happened was we had agreed, we knew that, I mean, Kick Out the Jams MF was not going to be a hit single. Um, so we did this other version, and um, what we told Elektra Records was that we knew when the album version, the real version, hit the stands that um, the stuff was going to hit the fan. But let the single get as firmly established in the charts as it can. Wait till it starts coming back down the charts before you put the album out because then they won't be able to stop us, you know, because then we'll be a bona fide hit band. And, and then the controversy will work in our favor, you know, because we're, we're telling the truth here. And uh, the record company, in all their um, short-sighted uh, lack of wisdom, when the singles started going up the charts, they rushed the album out. And when they rushed the album out, of course, the stuff did hit the fan and the and people started to be arrested for selling the album. Uh, kids in record stores or clerks were being arrested for selling this obscene record. And, and this is hard to understand in today's climate of, you know, of uh, hip-hop and hardcore uh, rap, you know, where MF is every third expression. Uh, but in those days, this was a, a major crisis. And, of course, the music industry... Um, wanted nothing to do with it and, in fact, uh, banned the MC5 from then on, really. <laughs> that was really, you know, the the uh, straw that broke the camel's back, you know, because uh, nobody wanted anything to do with the MC5. We were way too much trouble, uh, way too much bother. Well, why don't we hear Kick Out the Jams? We'll hear the original version with the expletive in it. We will conveniently bleep the expletive, but still you'll... you'll, you'll get the point of the recording. So here it is, the MC5. out the jams, expletive deleted. <laughs> and um, <laughs> My guest is one of the founders of the MC5, Wayne Kramer. On one of the MC5 recordings, uh, Ramblin' Rose, there's a live introduction by Jesse Crawford, who is the White Panther Minister of Information. Mm -hmm. Was this a kind of standard thing in concerts that one of the White Panthers would come up and um, uh, give their rap before a performance? Well, it, you know, we were all ministers of something or another. We <laughs> <laughs> you know, ministers of culture in the streets, ministers of defense, ministers of, uh, you know, I mean, you know, you can, I, I hope it comes across that this stuff was done with a lot of humor. You know, we weren't, we really weren't, 
you know, it didn't get heavy till much later. <laughs> it was really done with a lot of fun in the in the early days. But that was J.C. Crawford's role. He was our MC, MC you know, our master of ceremonies. And um, see, we, we tried to build this show based on our heroes, and one of them was James Brown. And James Brown has an MC that would come out and say, you know, and now the hardest working man in show business here to sing such hits as Try Me. Da-da, I'll go crazy. Da-da. So we just, we took that spirit of what he was doing and JC came up with his own text on it. Because we <laughs> want to make this a show. We want to make, we want to entertain people and take them someplace they hadn't been before. Because the world, as far as we could see, I mean, there were some awful bands back in those days. You know, the California bands were terrible. You know, they could barely play. And they would come into Detroit, you know, with these huge reputations. And we'd say, God, you guys, man, kick out the jams or get off the stage, you know. Because we were really, we were, we were focused on this idea of high energy. We wanted to have energy in our performance because that was the thing that felt the best and and when I listen to music, if I listen to black gospel music, there's a visceral commitment. There's a visceral energy to it. There's a spirit to it that reaches, that touches me. Um, the music of James Brown, the music of Chuck Berry and the free jazz music. You know, even, I even heard it in, you know, the mu- music of The Who or the some early Rolling Stones tracks. It, it had that energy. So that was the thing we focused on. So the, the, having the MC was part of that to to create this entire spectacular event. So so instead of having the James Brown MC talking about his hits, you had J.C. Crawford saying, "If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem." Exactly. <laughs> let, let's hear the introduction to Ramblin' Rose and, and hear some of Ramblin' Rose Great. as well. You're you're singing lead on this. That's me, yeah. Brothers and sisters, the time has come for each and every one of you to decide whether you are going to be the problem or whether you are going to be the solution. That's right. You must choose, brothers, you must choose. It takes five seconds, five seconds of decision, five seconds to realize your purpose here on the planet. It takes five seconds to realize that it's time to move. It's time to get down with it. Brothers, it's time to testify, and I want to know, are you ready to testify? Are you ready? MC5's recording Ramblin' Rose, the lead vocal on that sung by my guest, Wayne Kramer. Um, what kind of crowd reactions would you get? What, what were the best reactions? What were the most extreme reactions? Well, the, the, probably the best reactions we got were uh, in the Detroit area, you know, because we played there regularly for years and we had a regular job at the Grandy Ballroom and we we created that audience in Detroit and, and groomed them to be the best rock and roll audience uh, in the world. Um, uh, and, you know, we were able to, to, to transmit that to Chicago, to Cleveland, uh, to New York, um, and ultimately we carried our message across the sea to England 
but it never really translated on the West Coast. <laughs> the uh, the hippies just didn't connect with the MC5. Uh, you know, we just had we had too much macho energy. Our clothes were too shiny. Our amps were too big, and we did too much leaping, spinning, screaming, hollering, feedback. And you know, California was all about you know put the wear some flowers in your hair and. <laughs> And uh, we just we were just out of sync with the West Coast. <laughs> because of the uh, like revolutionary language that you used with the band and your associated association with John Sinclair, I think you were you were watched pretty closely. Um, and I'm wondering if you ever got your Freedom of Information Act files and if you could see for sure what the FBI was uh, was doing regarding your band. Uh, today, I know a great deal about what the federal government's attitude about the MC5 was, and um, it's very scary. Um, the White House viewed the MC5 as a threat. Um, we have, uh, through the Freedom of Information, documents that go all the way to the top um, uh, that uh, the Contel Pro program targeted the MC5 and the White Panther Party. Our phones were tapped. Um, we were followed. We were systematically harassed, arrested, um, jailed uh, in an effort by um, the federal government, the state government, and the the city of Detroit, uh, the Detroit Police Department in particular, to squash the MC5. Because the, the attitude was, you know, when is somebody going to do something about this band? You know, that we can't allow this rock band to say the things they're saying, to do the things they're doing, and influence our children this way. Um, and uh, it wasn't a joke, you know, and it got more serious as time went on. Um, uh, and, and uh, you know, in, in, in various uh, court actions against us and uh, you know, I read an interview with G. Gordon Liddy in Playboy magazine, and he said he read our propaganda and where we said we were willing to use any means necessary to, to destroy the system and start over. And he said, I took them seriously. And so we used everything we had against them. And, and so what did you think of what he said? How seriously should he have taken you? How should he have interpreted what you were saying? I think I think he, he I think he took it correctly. <laughs> if uh, if we could have changed the world, we we would have, you know. How did it affect the band when John Sinclair, uh, who uh, worked as your manager and um, mentor in a way, when he was arrested for for carrying two two marijuana joints and sentenced to ten years, what did that do to your band? Kind of broke our back, mm -hmm. really, you know, because uh, John was the interface between the band and, and uh, the outside world. And uh, even though, you know, he was as crazy as we were, um, he at least had the, the wherewithal to be able to talk, you know, and explain the, what we were trying to do in a, in a manner that people could understand. People in the music business mostly, you know. Um, and we never really found... Uh, uh, you know, uh, a champion after that. You know, we tried to work with a couple other managers, but it just never worked. You know, it was square pegs in, in a round hole. The, the MC5 really were unmanageable. MC5 founder, singer, and guitarist Wayne Kramer 
speaking to Terry Gross in 2002. He died last week at age 75. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. We'll also remember actor Carl Weathers, who played Apollo Creed in the early Rocky movies and who died last week at age 76. And film critic Justin Chang reviews The Taste of Things, a French film that just won the directing prize at the Cannes Film Festival. I'm David Biancouli, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series. Listen to the official Hacks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices, and they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Be My Guest with Ina Garten, a podcast from Food Network. Intimate and captivating conversations with new and old friends. Jennifer Garner, Frank Bruni, Emily Mortimer, and more. Listen to Be My Guest wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're remembering Wayne Kramer, who died last week at age 75. He was the founder of Detroit's infamous 60s rock group, the MC5, and also one of its singers and guitarists. The band was loud, aggressive, and politically active and liberal. Their early manager was White Panther leader John Sinclair, and the MC5 was the only band to play outside at demonstrations in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention in 1968. Terry Gross spoke with Wayne Kramer in 2002 when he had just released a solo album titled Adult World. You know, we've been talking about, like, the revolutionary slant of the music of the MC5, but some of it was just really fun. And I thought I'd play one of the tracks, and this is High School, and it, 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 sound, it sounds almost like a, a rough draft of, uh, for, the, for, for, for the Ramones, for their rock and roll high school. I mean, I, do you think they listened to your high school before doing their own rock and roll high school? 
I know they did. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they're friends of mine. You know? Oh okay. They, 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 I was, I was friends with uh, Joey and Dee Dee, and I, I know Johnny a bit. You know, but yeah, listen, they. Their manager was our publicist. Oh. So the connections are, you know, I mean, the connections are there. John Landau, who produced back in the USA, went on to manage and produce Bruce Springsteen. You know, uh, I, I can see how they, the, it's, this is idea diffusion. Right. And back in the USA is the album that this track is from. Right. Let's hear it. This is the MC5 High School. And by the way, the MC5 recordings are featured on uh, a recent anthology on Rhino Records called The Best of the MC5. My guest, Wayne Kramer, is one of the founders of the group. It was very difficult for you when the MC5 broke up, and you went through a, a kind of long period of addiction to heroin, alcohol. You spent some time in prison in, I think it was the mid-70s? It's mm-hmm. um, when I first started listening to uh, All Things Considered. <laughs> Oh, that's what of, they all say in prison. <laughs> a lot of people in prison listen to All Things Considered. Did, it's a did great they really? Show. Absolutely. <laughs> that's really funny. <laughs> Good. Um, so, so um, you were in prison for what? Selling drugs to, um, to uh, an undercover agent. agent. Yeah. What was their cover? Uh, that they were uh, New York mafioso drug couriers. <laughs> They and they look the part and they talk the part and they walk the part and uh, see you know when the band broke up um, I really lost my uh, connection to any um, spiritual principles any any principles at all you know and uh, and I was really uh, kind of adrift there in in a real negative time and a place and uh, doing wrong is a way of getting attention too. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a whole hierarchy in the criminal underworld of, you know, being a ghetto star, you know, being a hustler, being an earner, being, you know, somebody that gets paid, someone that gets over. This is the kind of uh, terminology that, you know, that was in my speech a lot. This is the way I thought a lot. And, um, and, uh, and uh, you know, the, that all culminated with this, uh, this huge... Uh, narcotics conspiracy that I was involved in. When you were in prison, in a federal prison in Lexington, Kentucky, you met Red Rodney, the trumpeter who early in his career played with Charlie Parker's band. Um, and you used to play together in prison. What kind of music would you play? Yeah, when I, probably the high point of being locked up um, for two and a half years was the time I spent with Red Rodney. 
Uh, he was, um, you know, like, you know, I, I grew up admiring uh, jazz musicians and, and, you know, you know, drug addict jazz musicians and alcoholic writers. And I wanted to be like those people, you know. And finally, you know, being in prison with Red Rodney, you know, he really became like my musical father and uh, and actually uh, taught me a, a course in a Berkeley music correspondence course in music theory. And we played, uh, we played bebop. It was... Uh, you know, I went in a pretty adventurous rock guitar player and came out, um, uh, I, I'd like to think, a competent musician, you know. Uh, he, he, was, he was a wonderful man, and I, and I, uh, I love him dearly. Um, you, you, you talked about how you really admired um, artists who were alcoholics or, or drug addicts. What did you find interesting or admirable about that? Well, it, it just seems so illicit and so romantic. But, you know, none of, none of those things made me an alcoholic or a drug addict. What it, did? Does, it doesn't work that way. Uh, what makes me a drug addict and an alcoholic is I like the effect that those substances have on me when I put them in my body. How hard is it for you now to stay straight? Um, well, hard. You know, it's... It's not that it's hard because uh, I know today that I don't have a drug and an alcohol problem. I have a living problem. And uh, What do you mean? I, what do you mean? Well, see, drugs and alcohol make it possible for me to live in a world that I can't live in, you know, because I've got so many resentments, uh, you know, because I'm angry about the MC5, because I'm angry that, uh, you know— my peers are all wealthy and I'm not, you know, I'm angry because I didn't get the girl I wanted. So I have all these, this baggage that I carry with me and it makes the world a world I can't live in. So fortunately, I've, I've been able to, to find a way to live where uh, drinking isn't necessary and getting high isn't necessary and that I can have a good life, a full life and, and be grateful for every day that I have in this life. MC5 founder, singer, and guitarist Wayne Kramer speaking to Terry Gross in 2002. He died last week at age 75. Here's the song he wrote for trumpeter Red Rodney, whom he met in prison. Well, the notes came out his horn, the street corners and fried food. Folks laughing in a nightclub, swinging in a mellow mood. Out the horn came city night on 52nd Street. Dope beans on the neon lights Moving to the beat Red Arrow could play anything The man could read fly shit From Brahms to Beethoven The latest Broadway hit He carried himself with style And a fine new hipster grace And a song inside his heart And a smile on his face Coming up, we remember actor Carl Weathers, who died last week at age 76. He played Apollo Creed in the early Rocky movies, and more recently had a prominent role in the Star Wars TV series The Mandalorian. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. 
How do you sleep at night? No matter what might be keeping you up, Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep. Mattress Firm will find you the right mattress from a wide selection of top brands at every budget. Plus, if you see a lower price somewhere else, they'll match it up to 120 nights with their low price guarantee. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See mattressfirm.com or store for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley. We don't even have a choice. See, we're born with a killer instinct that you can't just turn off and on like some, some radio. We have to be right in the middle of the action because we're the warriors. And without some, some challenge, without some damn war to fight, then the warrior may as well be dead, Stallion. That's actor Carl Weathers in the role of prize fighter turned trainer Apollo Creed in the film Rocky IV. He played in all of those early Rocky films. Weathers died last week at the age of 76. Carl Weathers was a linebacker for the Oakland Raiders before he turned his attention to acting. His other roles include Combat Carl in the animated Toy Story 4. When Combat Carl gets stuck in a jam, he says to himself, Combat Carl never gives up. Combat Carl finds a way. He also parodied himself in the sitcom Arrested Development, playing a money-pinching acting coach. In this scene, with Tobias, played by David Cross, they're at a party where food has been served. Tobias is chewing on a rib and is about to toss it. Do you see me more as the respected dramatic actor or more of the beloved comic actor? Whoa, 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 whoa. There's still plenty of meat on that bone. You take this home, throw it in a pot, add some broth, a potato. Baby, you got a stew going. Yes, that's fine. Uh, But I would like to focus on my acting, Mr. Weathers. I did give you my last $1,100. Let me tell you a little story about acting. I was doing the Showtime movie Hot Ice with Ann Archer. Never once touched my padilla. I go to craft service. Get some raw veggies, bacon, cup of soup. <laughs> Baby, I had a stew going. I think I'd like my money back. Weathers also co-starred in the Adam Sandler comedy Happy Gilmore and in the action movie Predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger. More recently, he played Grief Karga in the Disney Plus Star Wars TV series The Mandalorian. Terry Gross spoke with Carl Weathers in 1988. At the time, he was playing the title role in the film Action Jackson, about a cop sidelined to a desk job for unorthodox behavior, a part that was written for Carl Weathers. In fact, Weathers came up with the character's name. Actually, I was talking to an Australian one day, and he was telling me about this incredible love affair that he was in, and then he made mention of a phrase, Action Jackson, and I said, (laughs) hey, sounds like a good movie to me, sounds like a guy I'd like to know, and... uh, and then I had this 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 name, this last name, Jackson, and I was looking for a first name, and I thought, well, you know, he's a strong guy, and he's very physical, and you think of something happening, and I think of Jericho, the walls came tumbling down. And uh, so that's pretty much how it came about. Now, you're a very muscular guy, but you're you're more of an athlete than, say, um, 
uh, well, I don't know if you bodybuild or not, but your your background is a, is an athlete as opposed to martial arts, yes. for instance. Yes. So in in writing the stunts, were the stunts written for someone from your kind of athletic background? Yes. Uh, when I do movies and develop movies now. Uh, I certainly look when I'm the star of the movie or I'm involved in the movie and a lot of the stunts to build stunts that I can do very well and then, you know, the kind of stuff that's more like track and field and, and that comes out of football, which is the world I came out of as opposed to bodybuilding and and uh, martial arts and that kind of thing, you know? Well, really the very first stunt that you do is running. There's a yes. scene where, where you're kind of attacked by a taxi cab. <laughs> I like that. And, I love the way you put that. <laughs> and, and, and you say, I've got to go and catch a cab. Yes. And you start chasing the cab, and in the movie you're running at the same speed that the cab is I going. I ultimately chase it and catch it and then surpass it and jump on top of it. It's a Carl Weathers kind of day, you know what I mean? <laughs> kind of stuff I do on a normal day in Los Angeles. Well, just the running, just seeing you run, I thought, well, that's the first stunt. <laughs> yes, that was, that was uh, 12, 12 hours that day of just running. It's the toughest day I've ever had in filmmaking. Was that part of the goal, to get to see you run? I mean, were, were, were you a very good runner when you were a football player? It wasn't so much that. I think... Uh, uh, since I did some of the Rockies, though, and particularly the scene that uh, we were running on the beach, a lot of the kind of male and particularly women, women love to see this body and this flesh <laughs> moving around. Isn't it terrible? I mean, this group of humanity who wants to see this man's body running down the beach or running on a sidewalk or running down the street. So I said, come on. I make movies for people. I make movies for people who like movies and who want to go see movies. Give them what they want. Run, Carl, run. See Carl, run. <laughs> Carl can run fast. <laughs> okay, so we got this scene where you're running at the same speed that the taxi cab is, is, mm -hmm. is being driven. Uh, special effects there? No, it was real. That was all very real. Another real athletic moment for you. There's a, a huge, big guy yes. uh, guarding... He's huge and big. Yes, <laughs> he is, all in one. <laughs> He's guarding the door. He's unbudgeable. Yes. You punch him in the face. You punch him in the chest. All it does is hurt your knuckles. Yes. And then you basically ram him as if you were doing a tackle through in, the in a doorway. football move, and you all ram right. him right through the doorway. Yeah. Uh, and that struck me as a real football kind of uh, What do you maneuver. want from me? That's where I come <laughs> from, you know? It's kind of like... Uh, so is that, was that written for you? Like, let's yes, give him a real was. football kind of thing to well, do? Well, it wasn't... I don't think it was specified as football, but, you know, men are strange animals. It's kind of like an elephant, you know? You run at it, you knock it down, you mow it down, <laughs> and then you get up and say, hey, I did it. And that's pretty much the way that whole thing was designed. We, we had to show you different aspects of Jackson and also do it with tongue-in-cheek and a sense of humor. May I help you? Yeah, I'd like to speak to Miss Ash. I don't recommend that course of action. I do. <laughs> You're one big fella. How much do you weigh? 270 pounds. Well, that's pretty big. <laughs> I bet you make a good living at this, don't you? Good enough. That helps pay my way through medical school. If I was to hit you again, you'd probably slam my little body right through that wall back there now, wouldn't you? I was thinking about it, but it goes against all my Muslim beliefs. Good. Let me do one of your lines. Uh, uh, your, your, your police captain calls you <laughs> in and says, Jackson, you tore that kid's arm off, and you say, So he had a spare. <laughs> <laughs> right. I love that. I love, I love that it. line. Yes. <laughs> a lot of people have liked that line. That's, that's one of the, for me, that's one of the best lines in the whole movie, you know. And, and Bill Duke, the guy who plays my captain, is, uh, he was in Predator also, so we've worked together before. He's a good friend, and he's a wonderful director besides. Now, you got started as an athlete 
football mm-hmm. player. Mm-hmm. Were you interested in acting when you were playing football? Well, in actuality, it, it really, I got started as an actor when I was in fifth or sixth grade. It's the first play that I ever did. And I went through years of uh, junior high school and high school, and finally into college when I got a, a scholarship as a football player at San Diego State U, I majored in theater, you know, drama, and got a degree in dramatic arts. And I was just very fortunate that I got a chance to do um, both things at one particular point in my life. I was a football player and essentially earning my living that way and, and having a lot of fun doing that. And at another point, you know, I get to do what I've always wanted to do since I was a kid, which was be a professional actor. I think people first really noticed you in your role as Apollo Creed in Rocky. Uh, and how were you cast in that? Did, did you know much about boxing? <laughs> I knew nothing about boxing. I had never boxed. I'd never had gloves on. I'd never been in the ring. I'd never been to a boxing match. And I knew about the script. I mean, there was this wonderful script circulating. And they, the producers and the director, John Avelson, apparently had seen just about everybody in the country. So at this particular point, you know, they were, I guess, at a loss for someone, lost for someone to play this role. And I, at the same time, wanted to desperately to get into interview for this role. Uh, finally, they got me in to read, and I went in. It was very late one afternoon, about 6, 6.30, and I went in, and they introduced me to uh, the director, and then I met Bob and Irwin, the producers, and finally, they introduced me to call the man, and he was the writer, and they introduced me to him, and I said, how you doing, and all that sort of stuff, and he sat down at a desk, and I read with the writer, and the writer was reading, and I was reading, and the writer was reading, and I was reading, and he didn't get very excited about the reading. So finally, at the end of it all, when everyone was very quiet in the room, and they were sort of looking at each other and maybe mumbling to each other. And I'm very nervous that maybe I've blown the interview, you know, because it's very important. You want to get it. You're just anxious. And I turned to them and just blurted out, you know, if you get me a real actor, I could do a much better job. <laughs> well, I didn't know that the writer and the, and the star of the movie were one and the same. They didn't say, this is Sylvester Stallone, he's going to star in the movie. Right, you laugh. That's the way I felt. I felt like an idiot. I felt like a moron after I realized this guy was starring in the movie also. But needless to say... Um, Apparently, ignorance truly is bliss. I got the role, ultimately. You get a knockout punch in Rocky IV that kills the character. Yes, Apollo kills Creed him is, is dead gone. in the ring. Um, did you want to be written out of the series? Was no. It? Are you kidding? No. I, I mean, not in a million years would I have wanted to be written out. Uh, but once it was done, you know, uh, as, as much as I resisted in the beginning, I realized that there was a great opportunity because, first of all, the character is immortalized in the ring, you know, in the movie. And then... And by that character dying, finally, you know, Carl Weathers has a chance to go on and live in other roles because once the character is dead, then it's very obvious that Carl Weathers is an actor. And, you know, if, if you got to die, what a wonderful afterlife. <laughs> <laughs> Carl Weathers, thanks a lot for talking with us. Thank you. Pleasure. Carl Weathers speaking to Terry Gross in 1988. The actor featured in the early Rocky movies and more recently in the Star Wars TV series The Mandalorian died last week at age 76. Coming up... Film critic Justin Chang reviews The Taste of Things, the award-winning new French film starring Juliette Binoche. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today.
Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission. The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. The new movie, The Taste of Things, stars Juliette Binoche and Benoit Majumel as a pair of 19th century French cooks. It was France's official Oscar submission for Best International Feature, and it received the Cannes Film Festival's directing prize for its filmmaker, Tran Anh Hung. Our film critic, Justin Chang, found the film satisfying in a variety of ways. I first saw The Taste of Things at 8.30 in the morning at a Cannes Film Festival press screening last year. Like a lot of other journalists, I walked in jet-lagged, bleary-eyed, and hopeful that what I was about to see would, at the very least, keep me awake. It did, and then some. In the opening moments, as I watched Juliette Binoche putter about a rustic 19th-century French kitchen, whipping eggs for an omelet, my stomach began to rumble, and I wished I'd had more for breakfast than an espresso. In time, I was not only fully alert, but held rapt as Binoche prepared one elaborate, mouth-watering dish after another. A roasted veal loin, a milk-poached turbo, a shimmering baked Alaska. For about 40 minutes, she cooks and cooks and cooks, in a gorgeously directed sequence that plays out with very few words and no music. Just the sounds of sizzling butter, bubbling broth, and utensils scraping against crockery. The taste of things is, in every sense, a feast of a movie. A foodie tour de force to set beside such culinary classics as Babette's Feast, Like Water for Chocolate, and Tampopo. It's also one of the most deeply felt romances to hit the screen in ages. It's 1889, and Binoche plays Eugenie, who's lived and worked for years as the cook in the home of a famous gourmet, Dodin Buffon, who's known throughout France as the Napoleon of the culinary arts. He's played by Benoit Magimel. Both Eugenie and Dodin have spent their lives in the pursuit and perfection of culinary pleasure, something we see from the ease and assurance with which they move around the kitchen. We can also see that they're deeply in love. Indeed, it's hard to tell where their love for food ends and their love for each other begins. For years, Dodin has asked Eugenie to marry him, but she doesn't see why their years-long commitment to each other requires the official blessing of marriage. On most nights, he steals up to her bedroom at which point the camera discreetly turns away. After you've seen Dodin prepare Eugenie a dish of oysters, watching them make love would be practically redundant. The movie was exquisitely written and directed by Tran An Hung, a Vietnamese French filmmaker who, from his early films like The Scent of Green Papaya, has always delighted in ravishing the senses. His script very loosely drawn from Marcel Rouf's classic 1924 novel, The Passionate Epicure, doesn't have a ton of plot. Instead, it glides from one leisurely, multi-course meal to another, observing as dishes are prepared and eaten, 
and eavesdropping on snatches of dinnertime conversation. It isn't the story that makes the taste of things so enveloping. It's the luscious atmosphere of unhurried indulgence and vicarious privilege. As the film continues, it becomes more elegiac in tone. This is a story about the passage of time and the sacrifices that artists make in devoting themselves to their craft. Eugenie and Dodin consider taking on a young apprentice named Pauline, who already shows promising signs of becoming a great cook. But as they note, it will take years of intense practice and study for her to realize her potential. Meanwhile, Eugenie isn't in the best of health. She keeps having fainting spells, which she tries to downplay. It's a reminder that nothing lasts forever, not yesterday's meals, or even tomorrow's discoveries. The Taste of Things isn't the only great foodie movie of the season. You may have also heard about Menu Plaisir Les Trois Gros, Frederick Wiseman's magnificent four-hour documentary about the operations of a family-owned three-Michelin-star restaurant in France's Loire Valley. Ridiculously, Menu Plaisir, easily one of the best non-fiction films of last year, wasn't even shortlisted for the Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. Meanwhile, France submitted The Taste of Things for the International Feature category, but it wasn't ultimately nominated. But the lack of official recognition from the Motion Picture Academy doesn't diminish the beauty and satisfaction of either of these two movies. See them both, one after another if you can. And don't forget to eat in between. Justin Chang is a film critic for The New Yorker. He reviewed The Taste of Things. On Monday's Fresh Air, actress Molly Ringwald. She stars in the new FX series Feud, Capote vs. the Swans, as Joanne Carson, ex-wife of talk show host Johnny Carson, and one of Capote's most loyal friends. Ringwald rose to fame representing Gen X angst in 80s films like Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Pretty in Pink. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Sherrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm David B. Cooley. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Delta Airlines. When you think about it, half the trips the world takes are trips home. Home. What we all eventually long to get back to, no matter what took us away to begin with. Those at Delta know that, because all 100,000 of them are, above all, travelers just like you. It's why they try to make you feel at home long before you even get there. Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you're in HR and a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. How would this impact business? ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything. ADP, always designing for people. 
Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.